All right, how many of you are ready to dive into Nehemiah? All right, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, then Esther. Esther plays into this as well, but Nehemiah, learn where it is, put your bookmark there if you need to, make sure you've got your journal ready, out, open, ready to go. I'm going to do a little bit of preliminary stuff this morning before we jump into the text, but we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And so we'll get there. We'll walk through that. Nehemiah, a little different than what we did last year when we looked at a letter in the New Testament. Letters in the New Testament, typically when you're walking through those, studying those, preaching those from my perspective, it's easier because you look at the grammar you, you look at the subjects and verbs and the main ideas and you break that down and that's where you get your points from and, and that's kind of how it flows. It's easier to kind of take a section. When you're looking at an Old Testament book like Nehemiah, there's some narrative portions in that Old Testament and those narrative portions, it's not meant for us to take every single word of a narrative portion as though it's a command to us. For example, you take the book of Acts and the narrative portions, we don't cast lots to choose our leaders. We don't shave our heads to go to worship. There are some things that we just don't do that might be in some narrative portions of scripture. So we don't take those in the same way we do didactic passages or letters. And we also sometimes preach them differently. So you're accustomed last year as we walked through Ephesians, I give you the main idea up front. I come back around to the end and give you the main idea again. You get a slide with the main idea on there twice. Unless you're just asleep at the wheel, you're gonna get the main idea written down in your notes, all right? Sometimes in the book of Nehemiah, it's not gonna be a deductive approach, it's gonna be an inductive approach, which means we're gonna let the narrative talk to us before we ever get to the main idea. And that main idea is gonna come at the end of the sermon, not at the beginning of the sermon. Because to give it at the beginning of the sermon would be to steal the thunder from the text. The text is going to walk us through a narrative, let the tension build. As that tension builds, we start seeing where the author is going. And all of a sudden, here it comes, just like a punch out of nowhere, and it hits us. We see that in the parables. We see that in narrative. So be prepared for that. If there's something slightly different, today I'm doing it kind of like we did last year. I'm going to give you the front idea up front and at the end again, just to get you used to it. And then as we look through the narratives, some of these narratives, it's a huge list of names. So what do we do with a huge list of names? We're going to draw some principles out of those. We'll have some fun trying. I'll have some fun trying to preach that. You bear with me and we'll we'll do the best we can with it because we're going to go through every single verse. We're not going to skip it and just go across it. We're going to go through it. So we're going to walk through every single verse, even long list of names. All right. Are you ready? Are you buckled up and ready to go? All right. Here we go. Background. I've got a slide for you. 586, you have the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. You know this. They sinned against God. They did not keep the covenant. God sent the Babylonians to destroy them, to take them off into captivity. So they would be in captivity for 70 years. That sets one of the background scenes for this. You can see that in 2 Kings 25, where Judah is overtaken. 539 BC, you then have the fall of Babylon to Cyrus, the king of Persia. Babylon gets so great, They start talking about how they can't do anything wrong and all of a sudden there's the writing on the wall and Daniel there in Babylon interprets that writing on the wall as the unconquerable city will be conquered and it is. And so all of a sudden you have Cyrus or Darius as you're looking through Daniel chapter five and you have the fall. 
So then in 538, just after that, the first set of Jews return under Zerubbabel. That's Ezra chapter one through six. So there's gonna be three different returns, just like there were different exoduses. And that first return comes in Ezra one through six. So that's the book right before ours. We don't have time to go through it because we're going through every verse of Nehemiah. So you can read that to get background context. So after Ezra chapters one through six, then what happens is the book after Nehemiah, where you have Esther. And Esther happens under the reign of Xerxes is the Greek name, or Ahasuerus as it is in the book of Esther. And he chooses Esther as queen. Now remember what's happened here and think about the providence of God. There's a queen that doesn't show up. That queen ends up giving birth to Artaxerxes who follows Xerxes, but because she didn't show up, they put her out to the side. All of a sudden they're gonna choose somebody new. Esther, who has then been adopted, is the one that is chosen under the providence of God. And then you've got the whole story there of Mordecai and Haman and how Haman's gonna try to wipe out the Jews. And all of a sudden Mordecai is risen up and and the king, because he couldn't sleep the night before, is reading through the annuals of, of the great things that have happened from all of the servants and happens to read about Mordecai. Just happens to read about Mordecai, right? So then all of a sudden this trap is sprung. Haman has ended up being hanged on his own gallows that he built to hang Mordecai on. Esther is then the reigning queen right there. The son, Artaxerxes, understands and experiences Esther and Mordecai. And that lays the groundwork for then his rule and Nehemiah being the cupbearer So God, way before the book of Nehemiah ever happened, had been preparing little things along the way for what we're gonna see take place. That's just like God all throughout the Bible. The things we overlook, the things we pay no attention to, God is positioning people, he is positioning things and rulers and times and places because he's the sovereign God above all. And even if we just look at a date or a book and we read right past it, We have to recognize the background of Esther and Mordecai and Haman and all of this happening in Ezra six and seven, in between there somewhere, for then Ezra to be the one that is sent back in Ezra chapter seven. You see that in 458 BC. And then in 445 BC, 13 years later, Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem in Artaxerxes 20th year. We're gonna see that in Nehemiah chapter two. So there's your background. You kind of understand the context coming up. Babylonian captivity, walls are destroyed, Babylonians are destroyed, people are returning, there's three different returns. We're gonna be in the third return and we're gonna look at how that plays out. Here's your main idea for today. Nehemiah realizes the situation, he repents of sin, he remembers God's word and he requests mercy. So those are gonna be our points. As we walk through this text, as we look at the narrative, we'll we'll look at those in kind of different scenes or different things that he does in his prayer. Nehemiah realizes the situation, repents of sin, remembers God's word and requests mercy. All throughout this section, and honestly, all throughout the book of Nehemiah, you're gonna find a person who is seeking to serve. So there's a difference. He's not just serving when mom or dad said, go do this, and he says, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. He's not just serving when the boss says, go do this, and he says, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. He is seeking to serve. He's looking for a situation, and when the situation arises, he's saying, I can do something about that, 
and out of genuine concern, he is seeking to serve God and others. We could spend the rest of the morning talking about application for how we should seek to serve God and others in every situation that God brings along. We're gonna see this as a repeated theme. You're gonna hear this from me as a repeated theme throughout the book of Nehemiah. All right, we're gonna read this first section. I'm just gonna read verses one through three to start with. But when we read the word of God, it's God's word. He wrote it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inspiring men as they were so moved so that it can be called the very breath of God. So we stand in honor of the reading of the word of God. Nehemiah chapter one, verses one through three. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Dear Lord, I pray today that you would help us to see your text, your word clearly and apply it to our lives accurately. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So point number one, Nehemiah realizes the situation. So it says to us, as we look at the text here, Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Well, who is Hakaliah? It's never mentioned again in the Bible, but it is to distinguish this Nehemiah from other Nehemiahs in the various lists of those who return back. So we have a specific Nehemiah in mind. We don't know very much about him. We don't know that he was from a prominent family or that he was anybody special. And so chances are the Nehemiah that we are seeing here is just a normal person. Isn't it just like God to take normal people or nobodies out of this world and to put them in positions so that he can use them to do amazing things? And that's a point of application for me and for you is that God takes the nobodies of this world, the people that nobody would look at and say, that person is somebody awesome. Now, if you're offended, because I just called you a non-awesome person, realize that's in the grand scheme of the world. In the providence of God, we are nobody serving somebody who can do anything with anybody. And so we, as servants of the high king, can be used to do amazing things. So if you're in this room this morning and you think, I could never be used to do anything worthwhile on this earth, you're not reading your Bible correctly. Because your job is to serve the king faithfully. And the king has all power and all authority and can use you to do things you would never be able to imagine because he's the king. Nehemiah, his name means Yahweh or the Lord has comforted. It says in our text, this happened in the month of Chislev. That's between November and December. That's gonna be prominent. It'll come back up because it also tells us when the ask takes place. I'll come back to that along the way. And he says here in the 20th year, so the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, he was in Susa, the citadel. Susa, the winter capital. Susa, also the place where the story of Esther and Mordecai and Haman takes place. And so the background here is coming to life as he's pointing it out. And then Hanani, one of my brothers. Now this text could have meant a normal brother, a brother as in a brother in Christ or a brother of the Jews. But we know from chapter seven, verse two, that his actual brother's name was Hananiah. And so because we know that, we understand that this is his brother, his relative who came a really long way 
with certain men. We don't know who the other men were from Judah. So they're coming from Judah. He's asking, tell me what's going on. This is normal. A place that you might care about, a place that you have an inquiry about, tell me what's going on in your city. But now recognize that Nehemiah had probably never lived in Judah or Jerusalem. Nehemiah was likely born in Persia, served under the Persian king, was the cupbearer, had never been to this location. So it's not like if somebody comes from my hometown of Honeypah, South Carolina. Anybody in the room know where Honeypah, South Carolina is? One person, two people. There's three of us. So I could ask somebody who showed up, hey, what's going on? Tell me about the town. And as they spoke about things, different memories would pop up. Oh yeah, that's where we used to go mud riding on the weekends because there was nothing else to do. Uh, that's where they had the one restaurant in town that all of those things would pop up. He didn't live there. So he's asking out of a genuine concern, not because of personal memories, but because Jerusalem is the place where the Lord said, that's my city, that's where I will dwell. And so the concern here is a concern over the name of the Lord. He said, what happened to the Jews who escaped to our fellow brothers? What happened to those who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem? And they said to him, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Why are they in trouble and shame? The walls are broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. He asked a question. And in that question, there's a general, genuine concern for well-being. Now think about this. We often ask people questions. What's up? We don't really want them to tell us what's up. We don't care. We were just saying hello in the modern vernacular. Perhaps more formal greeting. Hello, how are you doing? If they really tell us how they're doing, we really expect them to say, good, fine, maybe it's been a rough day. Okay, great, I don't wanna hear any more, keep moving. That's typically how we respond to people, right? This is not that. This is the type concern that we would call a ministerial concern. When you're doing ministry and you're encountering somebody that looks like they're hurting, you look across the table and you ask them and in a focused look, what's going on? This is counseling. This is the motivation that many people have that work in social work or that work in psychology and counseling or that work in ministries. This is a concern that happens amongst healthcare professionals when they see somebody that has an obvious problem and they look at them and they say, tell me what's going on. This is not a flippant, hey, what's up? How's it going? How are you doing today? And then we're moving right along to the next assignment. This is a focused, sincere look and we know that because of the way he's gonna react because of what he does as we continue on through this text, he's asking a serious question. I'm engaged, I wanna know, tell me what's happening. What's the state of the exiles? What is happening with my brothers? What's going on with those who have survived? Tell me about Jerusalem. You see the passion here in his voice. And what he's told is not good news. Now let me drill a little deeper. Who is Nehemiah? He's a guy living in luxury in a land far off who has made it to cupbearer of the king. He has need of nothing, but he has genuine concern for others who are in great need. And he's eventually gonna leave the comforts of what God has given him in order to go serve others who are in great need. We'll come back to that at some point in time. Second point. Nehemiah repents of sin. 
We're going to see this in verses four through seven. So he finds out the situation. In verse four, it says, as soon as I heard these words, what did he do? He sat down and wept and he mourned for days. So I, so I would probably underline or, or put a quotation mark surrounding my notebook, the word for days, because let's get the seriousness of the response that took place here. He didn't just sit down and weep in some show. It says he sat down and he was broken over what he had heard and he wept, he cried tears. Now, some of you cry quickly, some of you cry rarely. I don't get the sense that Nehemiah is a soft person who's touchy-feely and cries all the time and loves Hallmark Christmas movies. I just don't get that sense about him reading through here. I get the sense about Nehemiah that he is a man ready to go to war if he has to go to war. Give me the difficult assignment. Let me do whatever it takes. But this touches his heart. Even the men who would consider themselves the macho men, this should show you something about the sensitivity spiritually and otherwise concern for others we should have even if we consider ourselves to be one of those macho type guys, not those touchy feely type guys. And here it says he sat down, he wept and he mourned for days. It says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Fasting, what is fasting? Fasting is when you forego a meal in order to spend time in prayer so that you are that concerned, so that you deprive yourself, you ex exercise willpower to say, I'm not gonna partake of food because I have something going on in my life or something going on with others where suffering is involved. And so I'm gonna, fertake, I'm gonna forsake that so that I can spend more time in prayer. Meals would have been a much bigger, longer deal in this day and time than it is perhaps in our time. This is not, I get to run by the BTS or Chuck's and grab a grab and go and then eat it in 10 minutes. And so I've got 10 minutes saved. This is a longer deal that he's dedicating to prayer. So we see this. He prayed and fasted before the Lord, the God of heaven. Well, that name is a name that's used in the book of Ezra as well, referring to God. And he says here, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now he starts with praise or adoration of God. He starts by focusing on who God is. And as he does this, we start paying attention to the model prayer that we see here in the book of Nehemiah. You think about the model prayer that we see in the New Testament, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We see a repeated theme there. We'll come back to some of this in our application. He says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night. So underline day and night. There's some emphasis here. He's praying, he's weeping, he's praying for days, he's fasting and praying. He's praying day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Now notice what else is happening here. So there's an emphasis on the prayer, but there's also an emphasis here on the confession that we're gonna see. As he starts out praying for your servants, Israel, he's confessing the sins of the people. And then he's confessing that we have sinned. So he moves from the corporate nation down to the we, including himself in this. And then he says, even I and my father's house have sinned. So notice the movement of the repentance here. This would be like me praying God, forgive our nation because our nation has sacrificed over 50 million babies in my lifetime. We've done this to the God or to the idols of convenience, 
of prosperity, of consumerism, of materialism, of hedonism. Different idols in different situations, perhaps. And yet we have done this. So then I would move from that to, God, we have been a sinful people because we have participated as a nation together in such a travesty. But then perhaps I move to an individual side and say, God, I too have bowed down to the idols of consumerism, of hedonism, of convenience, of materialism. Not in that way that corporately perhaps our country has. Oh, but I'm guilty of the same sins. And we all are, if we're honest with ourselves, in that our hearts and in our minds, we like convenience. We like stuff. We like for people to think good thoughts about us. We like for everything to go perfectly. We care about what other people think. And the root causes of some of our national sins really begin in our own hearts and in our own lives. And it's real easy to point the finger out there without ever turning the finger in here and saying, God, forgive me because I'm the one, Lord. When I look in the mirror, there's a problem with my heart. There's a problem with my life. And I need your grace and mercy just as much as the rest of our country needs your grace and mercy. And there's a movement that takes place here in the text. Oh God, forgive your servants, all of Israel. Oh God, we, I'm in that group. But oh God, even more, I and my father's house have sinned. He gives praise to God first. He moves then to repentance. In that praise to God, you see the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love. This is a familiar refrain all throughout scripture. You see that phrase over and over again. And then he says, would your ear be attentive and your eye open? I don't, I don't know exactly how to take this. I read this and it could just be a request to be heard but there could be in there, at least there is in my own mind and in my own life, a doubt that God will hear and answer the prayer. God, this is a pretty big ask. God, would you listen and would you respond? God, are you out there? God, will you grant what we're asking you to do? Those are the thoughts in my own mind when I ask for things that are sometimes out there, sometimes things that seem hard. As I pray and ask God, God, I know you're able God, I know you have the power, the authority, the sovereignty, the ability, but God, are, are my prayers getting through and would you answer my prayer? God, would you listen? Would you incline your ear and incline your heart? Now, how many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would say, I have prayed prayers that I have doubted God will answer? Raise your hand. I've been there. You pray those prayers, but you pray them and you kind of feel like you're the guy in the New Testament that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I, I know you can do it, but will you? Here may be what he's saying. Maybe we should reference Psalms 34, 15 through 18 when those questions come. It says, the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, his ear toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them and from the earth when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You know, there's another point to be made of this confession. When we confess sin, what does it require of us? It requires humility. 
I have to recognize when I confess sin that I am not self-sufficient in and of myself, but that I have a need and I have a need for forgiveness that is outside of me. Nehemiah prayed. Here's a quote from Cyril Barber. The self-sufficient do not pray. They merely talk to themselves. I don't need to pray. I've got it covered. The prideful, I can handle it. It's my task, it's my assignment. So the self-sufficient do not pray. They talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray because they have no knowledge of their need. I've got everything I want, everything I need. I don't need anything else. They have no acknowledgement of their own need. The self-righteous cannot pray because they have no basis on which to approach God. When you look at this prayer, you're reminded of the prayer in Daniel. Daniel chapter nine, verses four through six. Let me read it to you. I'll put it on the screen for you. Look at the similarities here on the screen as I read this. I pray to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, and you got your Bibles open to Nehemiah, look at the words. Great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Sound familiar? Some good model prayers for us here. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the word servants comes up again here, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes and our fathers and to all the people in the land. This is what we see in Daniel. This is what we see with the Pharisee and the tax collector too. Do we stand up and beat our chest and want everybody to hear our prayers? Or are we like the tax collector, recognizing that we are such sinners? Who is God that he would hear us? Point number three, Nehemiah remembers God's word. We see this in verses eight through 10. Nehemiah remembers God's word. Here, the word remember shows up. In verse eight, we see the word remember. This word is a key word in the book of Nehemiah. We're gonna see it here in chapter one, verse eight. We're gonna see it again in chapter four, verse 14. In chapter five, verse 19. In chapter six, verse 14. In chapter 13, verse 14, 22, 29, and 31. So towards the end, you see it pick up speed. It's mentioned in the beginning. It's gonna be mentioned at the end. It's also interesting to note that Nehemiah begins with a prayer and ends with a prayer. And all throughout the book of Nehemiah, we're gonna see prayers over and over and over again. Here, remember the word that you commanded I'm also struck by this. In this model prayer, it's all about you, 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 your, your. And sometimes when I pray in my own thoughts, even when I pray out loud, it's all about we, 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 or me, me, me. How quickly am I able to get to the me's of my needs? And here, even when he's talking about the repentance and the other things, it's the you and it's the your, it's your servants. So perhaps our prayers would even be better phrased to think about the fact it all belongs to God. God, would you reach your people with your word through your ministry rather than perhaps thinking about ourselves first, perhaps in an American individualized exaltation of human-centered personhood, even our prayers perhaps reflect that when we're focused on me, 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 me. Gimme, gimme, gimme. Even when we pray good prayers. Lord, this morning, would you help me to preach the word faithfully? Or God, would you exalt your word through your spirit so that your people would be changed to your purposes? You see the slight difference there? But perhaps there's a difference 
even if it's just me and Mama. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. There's a connection here to Moses. Back to back, two verses. Perhaps painting Nehemiah as the modern day Moses. Ezra had traced his lineage back to Aaron. So perhaps what you're seeing is Aaron and Moses flash uh, back to them, move forward now to the current context. In the current context, you see the re-coming back into the land. And that's done by Ezra and Nehemiah, a modern day Moses, a modern day Aaron. Remember the word that you gave to your servant, you see your servant in here again, Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. So he's quoting here the words about the promises that God made of when Israel repented, he would bring them back. And if they disobeyed, he would scatter them. And it's, it's key to me to note that Moses prayed about when your people disobey. Solomon prayed in the temple about when your people disobey. And so it was a foregone conclusion that the people are gonna disobey, but when they disobey. Now we should take note of that if we have a prideful arrogance in our own life to think we can't stumble or fall. It's a when we disobey. It's not an if we're gonna disobey. It's when we stumble, when we fall. And this is why we should be people of prayer. And this is why we should be people of the book. This is why every morning I open my Bible and get in the word because I know my heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can trust it? It's prone to wonder and leave the God I love. So every morning, renewing my mind so it won't be conformed to this world, it'll be conformed to the word of God, in the word, praying that God would change my mind and change my heart so that I could serve him well. And even as I say that, I hear me and my in there way too often. Maybe that's what the Lord's working on me on today as he's working on you on whatever else. The promises, verse nine. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, though you're everywhere, not too big of a thing for God, from there, from the outcasts, from everywhere, I will gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen to make my name dwell there. Notice that you're here. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. All right, remember, it's the promises, Exodus 32, 13, Deuteronomy 9, 27. The promises that they would return, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 4, and Deuteronomy 30. I will gather them, gather them, a consistent theme. You see it throughout Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Ezekiel, even in Micah. We'll gather them together to the place I have chosen, Deuteronomy 12, 5. All of this demonstrates to me that as Nehemiah is broken, as he is sad, as he is praying over and over, he leans into what? As he prays. God's word and God's promises because God is the covenant keeping God who is faithful to his word and faithful to his promises. So point of application for us. When we are broken, when we have trouble in life, where do we lean into? Where do we turn to? We turn to the promises of God because God is a covenant keeping God who keeps his promises and his word is sure and his word is true. So if we're not leaning into God's word, we're leaning into something false. I may come back to that. We'll see. All right, let's move on. Point number four, Nehemiah requests mercy. Verse 11, O Lord, again he says it, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. So it's plural here. Maybe they are gathered together. Maybe there are many. 
Maybe he just knows there are others praying similar prayers. He's not the only one concerned about Israel and Jerusalem who delight to fear your name. Oh, now there's a point of application for us. Do we delight to fear the name of God? These are servants who are praying servants who delight to fear God's name. You wanna be a mature follower of Christ? Pray frequently for days, morning and evening. Delight to fear God's name. Delight in the law of the Lord. Meditate on it day and night. And give success to your servant. Now note, he says today. So maybe this prayer recorded by Nehemiah or from the journal of Nehemiah, maybe he's prayed these prayers for a while, but today now he turns. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So we're gonna learn in chapter two when he actually makes the ask. When he makes the ask is the month of Nisan. That's gonna be March, April. So Nehemiah has been praying for 90 to 120 days. You say, well, Nehemiah, hurry up and stop praying and go do what you have to do. Nehemiah is not a slow man. Nehemiah went and rebuilt the wall in 52 days, but he prayed for 90 to 120 days before he ever asked the king, before he ever went and rebuilt the wall. He is a man of quick action, but even as a man of quick action, he says, wait a second, I've got to be patient on God. I've got to wait because I need God's favor. I need God's blessing with this man. So 90 to 120 days, he's praying day and night. He's fasting. He's weeping. He's fervently seeking the favor of God. And then all of a sudden it's time to go. And in 52 days, they do something completely amazing. And in my mind and in my impatient self, I think to myself, how many times should I wait longer on God before I go and do and do and do? Because I really like to check my boxes. I really like to accomplish my task. I really like to do whatever's next and get it done and then move on to whatever's next. 90 to 120 days of praying, really? Yeah. And that's important for us to note here. All right. This man. Who is this man in our text? Nobody special. Just the most powerful man in the known world. Artaxerxes, the king, who holds everything at his whim. We know from the book of Esther, if you went before the king without being summoned and the king didn't want you there, that he could just say off with their head and they're done, hang them, kill them, do away with them. It, these are kings who have all the power. They can do whatever they want. There's no system of judicial right. Here's Nehemiah. And he calls the most powerful man in the known world this man. But he called the God, the great and awesome God. And we should take note to the contrast there. Because how many times are we too absolved or absorbed in what this man of this world thinks? and care far too little about what the great and awesome God thinks. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. The cupbearers were typically handsome, smart. We know this from Daniel. They chose the best and the brightest. He knew how to choose the best wine because he was the cupbearer. He tasted it, and so he put it before the king. He had to be socially smart, not socially awkward because he was in the presence of the king. He had to be a good conversationalist, which meant he was probably quick-witted. He probably understood how to be around others. He had the closest access to the king and perhaps could have even determined who could see the king at certain points of the day. He had to be trustworthy because Xerxes, Artaxerxes' dad, was killed in his bedroom by Artabanus, a courtier, one of the servants. Trustworthiness, intelligence, looks. So how does Nehemiah pray? God, you have given me all these great gifts and you have put me in this position of power and this is the task that I can accomplish. 
Now that sounds much more like one of my prayers or one of our modern day prayers. He says, oh, great and awesome God. He doesn't talk about the gifts God may have given him. He doesn't talk about his position of influence or power. He says, oh, great and awesome God, grant me favor with this man. All right, so here's some application questions for you as we wrap this up. Number one, application questions out of the text. Are we seeking to serve God and others? Eight times in this text, your servant is emphasized. So if you don't like the word servant, if you bristle at the word servant, if you bristle at a spiritual humility that says, I'm on this earth to serve God and to serve him well, then that's a spiritual issue. We are not just servants. The New Testament actually uses the word doulos, which means we're slaves, we're bond slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so by being a follower of Christ, it means I am committed to do whatever my king commands me to go do. Whatever he wants me to do, let's go do it. There's nothing beneath a servant of God. God says, do it, you do it. We'll come back to that in the text as we get to chapter two and three. What is our reaction to trials? Here's what I see a lot. Here's what I see in my own life. Here's what I see in other people's lives. A trial happens. And when a trial happens, all of a sudden, we go to somebody else and say, can you help me with this trial? We go to a bunch of other people and say, can you help me with this trial? We go to social media and post about these trials. We start looking online to see if there's something that can help us with these trials, whatever that may be. But our first inclination is not to go to God in prayer or to go to God's word. And God is the one that can deal with most of the trials most effectively. Is your first inclination to go to somebody else? Is your first inclination to get depressed and get all absorbed with yourself because woe is me, I've actually got to go through a hard time in life. When we fail to recognize that everybody goes through a hard time in life, some of them may be harder than others, but everybody has trials. Nobody's life is perfect. Nobody's life happens just like they would want it to. Do we go to God first? I would challenge you, we should. How do we pray? So some of you in the room, you may come from non-Christian families. You may not have, have thought about how do I pray. The, the process of praying may just be daunting to you. So these are just some acronyms. They, they're, they're worthless. But if it helps you think through how to pray to God, and if it helps you study some of the prayers, then they're helpful. So use them. So here's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. We don't see Thanksgiving. We see all of the other elements. He had adoration for God, great and awesome God. He had confession. We have sinned. I have sinned. My father's house and I have sinned. We've all sinned. We confess. So the repentance is there or the confession. We don't really see Thanksgiving. I can't point you to the text and say, here's the Thanksgiving portion. But then there's supplication. God, today, would you grant me favor and mercy with this man? He requests mercy with the most powerful man. Cupbearer to the king. You see this in Acts. If you remember Acts, adoration, confession, Thanksgiving, supplication. Pray, praise, repentance, ask and then yield. Heart, honor God with praise, examine your life, ask for help or needs, request for others, and then thank God. Or past, praise, acknowledge, supplication, thanksgiving. A lot of these well-known acronyms, they include the same elements. So how do you pray? You praise God. You confess your sin. You ask God for what it is that you need to ask God for. You yield your life to him. Number four, do your prayers line up with God's word? I, I have talked to students before, alumni before, students at other schools before. 
sit down and say, God has told me I need to get a divorce. No, he hasn't. You can't pray a prayer and expect God to answer if it's inconsistent with his word. You can't claim God has told you to do something that's inconsistent with his word. Do your prayers line up with God's word? If they don't line up with God's word, you're not praying correctly. How do you know if they line up with God's word? Study God's word. Read God's word. Meditate on God's word. All right, you get it. Are you putting more faith in this man of the world than you are in the great and awesome God? Anybody given to pleasing others in the room? Here it is. We all struggle with this. So let me say to you, the central idea of this text is that Nehemiah realizes the situation, repents of his sin, remembers God's word, and requests mercy. He's seeking to serve God and others. God, you are truly a great and awesome God. And we are truly a sinful people. So God, this day, would you grant us mercy for our sins? Would you restore us? Would you help us to think godly thoughts and live godly lives? Lord, would you be glorified through what we do for your name's sake? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. And you are dismissed.